Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, a fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon upstairs in the games room at Mark's Club by Geoffrey Kent, the founder, chairman and CEO of Abercrombie & Kent. The world's first and foremost luxury travel company, Abercrombie & Kent is best known for inventing the modern photographic safari, encouraging its tourists to shoot with a camera, not with a gun. Today, it offers a dizzying array of tours, experiences and adventures across all seven continents, catering for a star-studded, conscientious and discerning clientele. In this week's episode, the travel tycoon tells us how he convinced the richest man in the world to become one of his first ever customers, why most entrepreneurs fall at the very first hurdle, and how an incident with a tailored shirt changed his outlook on life forever. Jeffrey, Abercrombie and Kent sort of invented a whole genre of travel um, that didn't exist before. I suppose we might call it experiential travel. Uh, did you have any idea when you started that you were doing something so very new? And was that the intention? You know, when you start off in life, you have no idea what you're doing except to try and get a job and, and to where's the next meal ticket coming from. And so, you know, we lost all of our farms in Africa in 1962, and that's how I grew up. And then I was in the British Army, went to Sandhurst. I was in the Fifth Royal Inniskilling Dragoon Guard. So I had a big uh, military background behind me. So, so I grew up in the wilderness, and I had the military background. So by the age of 20, that, that's what I'd done. Right? Yeah. So that was my experience. And I'd also, I was a very good horseman, so I, I played polo. So I played polo, knew the military, hmm. and um, knew the military, and... Um, and you when were we, riding horses from no, age of three, almost, weren't you? Exactly. So, yeah. But when we started the company, what I knew was I had to have a good name. And I came up with uh, the biggest company was, was uh, Car and Downey. And um, I thought we had to be something in Kent. And I want to be top of the alphabet, the yellow pages. Yeah. And so I came with Abercrombie because A-B-E. Actually, first of all, I came up with Aardvark, A, but knew I couldn't make a good logo <laughs> out of Aardvark. So then I thought of um, Abercrombie, Abercrombie and Kent. Where did that come from? Was that just well? I'd read the book all about Roosevelt's great trek across Africa. Yeah. A, um, um, you know, another company had then called Abercrombie and Fitch. Those days was a hunting company. Right. Yeah. Uh, and they had outfitted that. Yeah. And so I thought, well, that, that I'd never been to America. No. That sounded like a good name. And yeah. also, my pilot was called Abercrombie. Oh wow. Yeah. So I thought, well, that's a good name. Okay. That's and, a good so, sign. And so I was called Abercrombie and Kent. So I started with one hundred pounds, um, Vedic house, and just blocked from the new stand in Nairobi had a car one Land Rover and that was it so yeah did I what I what I really started was everybody grew up in in Africa and all you want to do is be a, a professional hunter right. you want to be a white hunter professional hunter that's what they were called and it was Americans or English you go oh, I want to be a lawyer or I want to be this or that's what you wanted to be so it was too late for me I'd gone to Santos become yeah. a professional hunter would take another seven years of, of working with another you know learning the trade as it were and so I came up with this idea that why don't people take photographs? What, why are we killing everything? And there's a big story in my book, you know, yeah. how I shot my last elephant. And, and then that moment, then I came up with the slogan, hunt with a camera, not with a gun. And I thought of it one morning at breakfast, you know, which I don't eat. I used to eat a lot of <laughs> breakfast in those days. And um, so that started. And, and my original 
cameras and everyone laughed. It was like if you're a polo player and you'd say, well, actually, I play polo cross or something. Right. It would be ridiculous. So to say I'm doing photo shoot was the most unmanly, unmacho thing anyone could think of. And I said, well, I'm going to stick with it because many more people will take a uh, shoot with a camera than shoot with a gun. Yeah. Got to be. So that was, that was the thesis behind it. Right. But then I started on the photographic safari and it was so boring because all you could get was little self-service lodge. Um, There's no food. Um, the refrigeration was the old charcoal, uh, charcoal with the wind blowing through it and kept one pat of butter maybe, yeah. a, para, a para, you know, paraffin fridge which made six cubes of ice. And so it was a miserable experience. Everything was bad about it. Photography was boring, uh, horrible accommodation. I said, ah, oh, this is, this is going to fail. And this won't last long. Yeah. And so I used my military experience to bring down from. I said, "Why can't I have? Why can't I have the thrill of a hunting safari?" And so, but you need to be in a tent because you need to get out yeah. away from them. And then you need refrigeration. On a hunting safari, uh, you shoot every day. You go and shoot. You know, you go and shoot sandgrass in the evening. You know, and you shoot a, a, a fantastic um, eel during the day, and you have delicious steaks and everything. Yeah. Or buffalo, or whatever. But you couldn't do that on the photographic safari. So th this is the this was the brainwave. I thought, why don't I go and get my engineer from my military days in Libya to come down to Africa, and we will make what I made for my general, uh, John Frost, the refrigerating the refrigeration yeah. truck, really, that I could freeze everything. So the concept was that I'd be in the bush, and it'd be like Mathega Club in the bush, right? Or the officers' mess, the Fifth Royal Indian Dragoon Guards in the bush. Gold plate, all that sort of thing. Right? That was the idea. So it was kind of just marrying your two areas of experience yeah. and finding a kind of sweet spot in the middle. Exactly, but it'll get into the adventure bit in a minute, yeah. right? Because that wasn't thought out either. I'm just telling you, I was bored. Okay. I was bored stiff. I'm probably enough reason, yeah. And now at a yeah. mobile camp, four by four trucks, incredible food, and we started to go into the reserve. So I was the first to do a camp ever in the world, a private camp in the Maasai Mara. I was the first to camp at the bottom of the Ngorongoro crater. We went all over Uganda. We took, put it on the ferry and went right across Lake Victoria. We went to Parar Lodge, went to Queen Elizabeth Park. We saw yeah. the Nishasha with the lions, lions living in the trees. And I could camp right underneath them. It was amazing. And suddenly word got out. I went to America with this new invention. Yeah. And it, you know, the rest is history. It sold out. Of course. However, it still for me was not exciting enough. And now we're going to the next step. And I came up with something called Off the Beaten Track. I said, you know, this is all great. This is going well. And, you know, I was doing pretty well that time. I thought, where, where shall I go? And I was off in the Bel down the Belgian Congo. No, no, DRC. Those are the Belgian Congo. And somebody told us in Bukovu, and somebody told me that there were gorillas. Somebody that befriended the gorillas. This is way back in the 60s. Yeah. And anyway, I found the guy in a bar, French Frenchman, found him. He said, yes, I tried the best French I knew. And he took me off early in the morning in an old Austin champ, I remember the car. And we drove for hours in the forests and finally we camped, no camp, nothing. We slept under the trees. And anyhow, we found gorillas. I said, wow, I'm going to sell this. And so I came back, created a little green brochure. I said, so I created off the beaten track and everyone yeah. would have a different color. Green for gorillas, I remember. Brown, then I did something in the northern frontier. Ahmed, the huge elephant, was up there in those days. Tusk was so big he couldn't lift his head wow. and going across the northern front then the Mara was was uh, I remember that was uh, that was a and I had one of the I did a diving trip all of Lamu Archipelago and had one in the Mara 
Now, those are my four off the beaten tracks. Right? Yeah. And they're all to do with walking, uh, driving across deserts, northern frontier, checking gorillas, or diving. That was the first one. That was launched in about 69, sure. 70. So that was the beginning. Yeah. And um, I found it very hard to sell people. I loved it, but I couldn't sell very many people. No. They didn't... Um, didn't get carried away with it. I feel like that's the step we're missing out. How did you make that transition from being an ambitious young guide with a Land Rover to to actually convincing people to part with their money and people like David Rockefeller were some of your early clients. How how did you find them? How did you speak to them and what was the pitch? <laughs> you know, I meet a young people today and we say, Oh, I got this new business, they give this great PowerPoint presentation and it's all about product, right? Mm. Product. And what I've been talking about so far is product. Yeah. Because actually you don't have a product. Uh, you have nothing to sell. Yeah. But the trouble is people leave too big a gap between product and selling, including myself. So I've, I'd invented the product. It was a great product, but I couldn't sell it. You're right. So what did I do? So I used to sit outside the the New Stanley Hotel. And I, used to, I remember I used to drink milk, milkshakes in those days in the, in the Thorn Tree Restaurant. And I'd read in Time magazine, it was the only thing I read in Kenya those days, that the richest people in the world were Texans. Okay. And, and and you could easily identify them because I was already identifying birds as a guide, you know, because mm. they had big cowboy boots and they had a big hat. All I'll do then, if I sit outside the New Stanley, eventually the Texan will arrive and they have so much money, I'll go up to them and sell them a trip. Right. That was the, that was the business plan. So every morning <laughs> I did my letters, in those days letters, all right? Then I didn't have many letters to write because it wasn't very big company. Mm-hmm. And then I go and sit there waiting, and day after, and one day, sure enough, taxi arrived. I get this huge Texan, yeah. you know, hat, everything. Oh, I said, "You got to go up to him." So I got up, went up to him, said, "Excuse me, so would you like to do a safari?" And he turns out his wife said, "Hey, mama, I think he called her mama or something. Hey, mama, would you would you like to do a safari?" He said, "Yes, that would be wonderful." And I said, "Good." So I went up to him, joined him in his suite, and he was standing. Yeah. And I said, you know, it could take about three weeks. In those days, safaris were three, three to four weeks. And he said, that's fine. I said, listen, I'll go work on it. I'll come back to you. So wow. I, went, I went back to my office. And we had an old Addo X machine then, okay? I'm, I'm putting all the, all the I've never done a safari like this one. No. Three weeks, wow. All Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya. And I was adding it all up, national park fees, putting in my profit. And finally came up with a number. It was like, I don't know, $3,000, right? In those days. Which then was probably a, a lot of money. It's so $3,200, about that, right? Yeah. Wow, it's a lot of money. Anyway, so I went back. And so I go up to him in the suite. I started telling him about this trip. We go past Mount Kilimanjaro, in Lake Manyara, Ngorongora, Serengeti, Maasai Mara, go up to cross the lake, blah, 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 blah. And he got so excited. And then he said, yeah, but what is this going to cost? And I pretend not to hear him. I just went on selling, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Murchison Falls, uh, the source of the Nile. No, 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 no what's it going to cost? Oh, God, here we go. And I couldn't get my hands around 3200 yeah. It seemed such a lot. So I said to him, $2,900. And he looked at me and said, is that all? No. And I looked at him and said, oh, no, no, each. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I made a quick 100% profit, all right? Wow. Uh, it's true, a totally true story. <laughs> so, that meant, and then, then as always, I was working word of mouth, but that wasn't going to get me anywhere. I mean, I was getting there. And then again, I read about uh, the richest man in the world was uh, David Rockefeller. All right, again on Time Magazine. He's going to have my coffee. See, I'm having coffee now, but he used to go down Kenco Coffee Shop and read Time. 
yeah. any way I could keep because I, I was just a Kenyan boy and you know didn't travel um, had exchange control you know problem so so I said wow if I could get the richest man in the world to travel with me that would beat Carndine I used to wake up every morning if I'd had a dartboard I'd throw throw darts into Carndine right because they they laughed at me they thought okay. I, Thought I was stupid. That was your biggest competition. At the yeah, time. well, I was trying to well, tell they're... them that they're, they're, I was really telling them that they're dead. Hunting is dead. Mm. And I am the savior of the industry. And they all, I was a joke, of course, a complete joke. Big savior of the industry, one car and a few, you know, nothing. <laughs> Did you really him. believe it or was that all kind of youthful naivety? No, 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 I believed it. Yeah. This is the, this is the part you've got to understand. I you've got to believe it. And you can't I pretend to believe it. No, no, I completely believed it. Right. And um, so I read this the richest man in the world, I'm going to get David Rockefeller. So I said, how do I do that? And funny enough, you know, David died just recently and I celebrated his 100th birthday with him wow. in, in Morocco about two years ago. And I told this story I'm about to tell you now, reminded him of it and he loved it. And he said it was so funny. He, he laughed away, you know, because what I'm about to tell you is really true. Yeah. And so I said, well, i got to get, I got to get to America. And so I had no money and they had exchange control. And so I... There's a guy called in Nairobi called uh, Tony Danvers, Colonel Tony Danvers, and he was head of Sabina, uh, which was the Belgian airline. You probably yeah. don't even know. No, you? I've never heard, never of, heard Sabina. of Sabina. No, no. Sabina was the largest airline in Africa because, oh, wow. of, because of the Belgian, yeah. the Belgian Congo. So Sabina. So I told him, I said, Tony, I will. T I was already a very good polo player. I'll teach you how to play polo if you get me free to New York. Okay? He said, Okay, I'll give you free polo lessons. Good. Deal done. Get on the plane. Finally, get to New York. Easy. Rockefeller Center, taxi, arrived, walked in, no security in those days, went straight up, walked into this huge office. There was an assistant, an executive assistant outside there. Um, uh, he said to me, um, excuse me, who are you? I said, oh, I've, I've come all the way from Kenya to see, um, see David Rockefeller. Oh, really? Does Mr. Rockefeller know that you're here? No, he doesn't, no. Um, I'll tell you why I'm here, though. I see that they're building a Chase Manhattan Bank um, in Nairobi. And um, I know he'll have to come and open it one day. Hmm. He's chairman of Chase Manhattan. And so if he's coming all that way, I can take him and we'll go and look for beetles. I did, did a bit of research. I knew he collected beetles. And I can take him and find incredible beetles. You know? Wow. And he said, he said, listen, first of all, what's your name again? I said, oh, Jeffrey Kent. First of all, uh, Jeffrey. Um, well done in coming all this way, but you're not going to see Mr. Rockefeller. Secondly, Mr. Rockefeller never, ever opens a bank. He's chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank. He doesn't go to Nairobi yeah. to open a bank. All right? Oh, I said, oh, okay. And anyhow, let's have a coffee. You're a nice young man. We had a good talk, all right? And um, that was it. Sent me back. No, never got there. Got all the way back to Kenya. Wait, waited six months. Yeah. And I kicked myself. Every day I went to have coffee. Every morning. I said, you were so pathetic. Right. You got turned away by what? You were this close to him. He's in the office. And you let this guy turn you away. Wow. And I did the whole thing all over again. I got there, <laughs> walked in. So he said, you here again? And I said, yes, I am. And, and I said, I've got to see. Please let me see Mr. Rockefeller. At that minute. And by the way, you have to be very lucky in business. Right. Very lucky. This is luck. Sheer luck. Mr. Rockefeller came out of his office. 
And I went up to him. He immediately said, Mr. Rockefeller, it's so nice to meet you. I've come all the way from Kenya. Now, I think you may be coming right down with it. And by the way, they have these amazing beetles, all right? And you should come for a few days. And he looked at me and said, do they really have those beetles? Oh, I said, absolutely. They do. We can go up to Kubifora. Or we can do this. We can go in Gorongoro Crater. They have the beetles down there. Yes, we can. But we just need a few days, you know? Wow. He said, wow, he said. And he, then he turned around to his assistant and said, um, oh, he said, um, you know, his name is Joseph Reed. Uh, who later on became the UN ambassador to to the the US ambassador to the UN, Joseph Reed, Joseph Reed the Third, said to Joseph, Joseph, this young man has a fantastic idea. We've got to go to Egypt. Why don't we just take the plane and just go on down to Nairobi? Wow. Oh yes, sir, says Joseph Reed. Very good. And staring, glowering at me when Mr. Rockefeller <laughs> <laughs> and I said, There you are. And so, long story, they yeah. came with me in nineteen sixty nine. Wow. I was there. The richest man in the world arrived, not Khan was meeting him, not Jack Block, but Jeffrey Kennedy. Yeah. So all through those stories, it seems to me that there's a kind of mad fearlessness in, in, in all of your early exploits. Do you think that's very important for an entrepreneur to be, to not get scared or nervous when they're walking up to someone like David Rockefeller, the richest man in the world? You cannot be. You, you have to, you know, I play polo. You ask anybody how I play polo. It was mad and fearless. Right. Everything I did was mad and fearless. Didn't yeah. matter. Um, just go full speed. So I think if you're not really, really brave, and you're going to have so many setbacks, you know, the one I had with Rockefeller. I mean, I could go on all day with you, but that was. What, but you never give up. You will always have a setback. Do you but think you, most people would would have quit after the most, first? Most people quit. Most people say, "Well, I, I couldn't get there. I'd be yeah, too embarrassed." What would people say? Don't care about it. You have to be pretty fearless, yeah, and not care what people say or think. You just so you have to be completely convinced in your mind that this is right, and fearless. You know, I mean, you look at <clears throat> the wonderful book on Steve Jobs, you know, yeah. and, and Apple. I'm sure you've read that book, but he was completely fearless. He always knew this was the way to go. Of course. And so, well, what, what do they call it? He said he was disoriented or something, but he wasn't disoriented. Yeah, he was completely. He knew it. And, you know, I always tell the difference. When I have an idea, and we're sitting on the ground, you know, the analogy is there's peaks of a mountain over there. Yeah. I'm right here, and I know exactly that I should be on that peak. Yeah. I know exactly I should be at the top of Kilimanjaro. Everybody else, when you're trying to explain that, their mind's saying, well, that's a ridiculous comment. How's he going to get there? So their mind's already, how'd you get out the door? Where's base how'd you camp? get there? Yeah. Where's base camp? Where's this? What are the problems? How are you going to go? Meh, 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 meh. No. That'll work itself out. But do you need to know the route up the mountain, or can you no, just know said, the you destination? No, I work it out. You work it out. Yeah. So I don't do any of these. You know, uh, you know, part of my weaknesses too. That I don't bother too much about you know, working out whether because you never know. You yeah. can't work cost sheets because you never know. You just I'm going to get there. How I'll get there? That's another issue. But I will get there. Yeah. And that's what happens. It seems to me also that it's those adventures are kind of those days are gone when you could walk up into an office without seeing it, or when you could sit outside of a hotel and just approach people. It seems now that people are much more guarded with their uh, with their money and their time. And it's harder for an entrepreneur to get these face-to-face -face meetings. Do you think that's true? Or do you think that's me being <laughs> a naysayer again? I think I think it is actually harder today. Yeah. I have to I have to admit. Mark, it wasn't very easy for me. <laughs> By the no, way, I didn't start this company in London, all right, in Mayfair. Yeah. I started in the back streets of Nairobi, all right? Yeah. Have you ever been to Vedicast? Go no. take a look one day. <laughs> I mean, that's where Abercrombie Kent started, not in some fancy place. No clients, nothing. So nothing is easy. No. And people tend to make, well, 
they tend to make excuses. But I think if you were really, which I was a completely crazy adventurer, mm-hmm. like I went to Saudi Arabia in 1972, where I made our first my first million yeah. dollars there by building camps. That's a, that's a great story, by the way. <clears throat> but you have to go and do it. And um, I think today, everything obviously focuses obviously around the internet, and mm-hmm. social media, and... Um, I, I'm always reinventing Abercrombie and Kent to fit in with social media. Everyone says, oh, this is going to disintermediate our business. Says, no, it's not. It's going to grow us again. Yeah. No, we've just got to re- rejig our, yeah. our assembly lines in a different way. And so, but I think people do try to make excuses. But honestly, if you have an idea, check if it sells. Go and try and sell it to somebody. Or you must do it yourself and be so convinced. Why isn't everybody doing this? And I could mm. not understand why people weren't tracking gorillas or looking and yeah. going down rivers. And I couldn't believe it that they didn't do it. And then I went to America once, sat next to an American, and he said to me, I said to him, so what's the most dangerous thing you do every day? What's the most dangerous thing you've ever done? He looked at me like this, most dangerous thing. I think we're sitting in 21 in New York. And he said, oh, he said, yeah, I did something really dangerous. I said, wow, what was that? He said, I ran an amber light on the way to work. <laughs> wow. That was the extent of danger. Yeah. For an average guy, right? I ran, I, I ran red lights all the time. <laughs> no sense. I didn't bother about amber lights. That's like being safe. So I knew then, wow, this this market is wide open. If that's yeah. the biggest adventure, an amber light, I'm going to change your lives. I'm going to take you guys all over the world and expose you to the most incredible thing. So were you a natural businessman or was that something that you definitely had to learn? You obviously had the entrepreneurial streak, but as far as the numbers go and the more mundane stuff. Did that come naturally? Not really. You've just got to know where your weaknesses are. Right? And my, all I know is selling. I'm a salesman. Yeah. And I keep on telling everybody, don't give me this stuff about why there are no great, a lot of great companies have been ruined. Why? Because of the analysts in the market and who becomes the president and CEO? Usually it's the chief financial officer. Yeah. And I'm not being rude by my own chief financial He's wonderful. Been with me 27 years. I could not even wake up in the morning without calling him. All right, but I know that's my weakness. Yeah, and I run everything past him. But but to make to to have CEOs running the company is not usually the right thing because they forget about one thing: sales. Mm-hmm. Sales only exist on what's coming in every day, not how it's run. Yeah, see, CFOs know how to run things when it's in there, and so you know, uh, I believe there's not nearly enough emphasis today put on ideas new ideas and selling. And all I do every day, every morning is waking up with a new idea and think how am I going to sell this today and then pass it down through the tube. So what Fortress did was they gave me an incredible backup team. You yeah. know, whether the, the CFO, CEO, you know, the, the, the CFO, COO, all these different people who I pulled in, but they taught me how to yeah. do it. And, they, and, and everything today revolves around IT. And IT is the hardest thing of all. And I know nothing about it. It's a big joke. I come to all the meetings with my yellow pad. Yeah. But my yellow pad works, and they blow another eight million, uh, and it didn't work. I said, my yellow pad. Think how many yellow pads I could have bought with eight million dollars. You know? <laughs> so, so IT is the biggest challenge. I mean, there's so many things to running a business today. Yeah. That most people are getting dragged down into these 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 details down here, which don't create sales. That's the problem with companies today. And I'm always right. With Abercrombie and Kent, literally this year is 20% up on last year, which yeah. was 20% up in the last year because of new ideas, new things. And I'm and I'm selling, getting that out. Whether it's doing a podcast with you, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe somebody's listening to this, saying, "Wow, I wouldn't mind doing that trip." Of course, that's a sale. Uh, this is a question which we ask almost every week. But 
what do you think is more important, what you know or who you know? Oh, who you know every time. Right. Who you know every time. Why is that? <laughs> it's, 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 uh, I make it my life because, A, first of all, I love people. Yeah. I really enjoy people. And you have to enjoy people. But I do. And whenever I sit with someone, I always learn something from them. So I spend every day from breakfast to lunches to teas, whatever, meeting people. Yeah. And, and it could, do you remember that program, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Of course, yeah. And do you remember when you get stuck, you have to get somebody to call? Yeah, for right? a friend. Yeah, you're okay. So that's what I'm like. I have this huge problem. I said, I sit there, mm, have a coffee, always have a coffee. Mm, who knows about that? And I'll call somebody up and I get the answer. So, so, or I need to meet somebody yeah. or whatever, right? And you get in a wonderful lunch with David Tang the other day. And then David told me how he got, you know, how he got to Cuba yeah. and how he got the, the license for all, all the cigars, you know, yeah. to, to, to knowing people. Well, David Tang is the, the epitome of knowing people. His network is meant to be the best in the world listen, almost. Listen, uh, when I compare myself to David, I'm like a little minnow, you know. <laughs> He's a giant yeah. humpback whale. Yeah. Um, <laughs> David knows everyone. But, but it's, who you, it's who you know, definitely. They'll always solve a problem. So how do you... If they like you. Yeah, of course. By the way, you're not... You've got to be likable as well. They've got to be likable. They've yeah. got to say, they'd like to be with you. Yeah. yeah. But is there a way to, I suppose you've done it in your life, to cultivate those contacts from nothing? Because it, if an entrepreneur was listening to this, they might think it's very well to say who you know, but I don't have... I live in, in the back end of nowhere and I've got no family well, look, who can connect me. Well, look at me, all right? Yeah. I mean, I... I you know, I was expelled from... You know, A, I went to school in Africa, in Kenya, all right? Um, you know, Thompson's Four School, Kenton College, Duke yeah. of York. I was expelled from Duke of York School at 16, all right? Um, drove my motorbike uh, from Nairobi to Cape Town, the first in the world to do it, yeah. 16. Yeah. No maps, no plan, no nothing. End up in the Zambezi River and all sorts of things. Nearly killed, but I get there. And I get back, all right? And that's what my father says to me. I'm sick and tired of you, expelled from school. You have no career. You're out of control. You're yeah. hopeless. So I am taking over, and this is what you're going to do. I said to my dad, I said, oh, what's that? He said, well, it leaves in two weeks' time. I said, what's it? And where's it going? He said, well, you're going to a wonderful place called England, all right? There's an amazing establishment where you can play polo, ride horses, shoot as much as you want, and you will love it. Active, dangerous, fantastic. I said, wow, that sounds interesting. What's that? He said, oh. He said, it's called the Royal Military Academy Santos. <laughs> I really I had no idea what it was. I, you know. Yeah. I'm a Kenyan. And so I bought my first suit in my life, put in this troop plane, refueled in Benghazi, arrived uh, arrived um, Lynham Airport in England, right? Where I was met by a four by four and a sergeant major. I had not one person, I did not know one person in England. Right. No family, no relative, no nothing. End up at Purbright, go down to Devizes, pass all of my tests, end up at Santos. I didn't know one person in this country. So you have you have cultivated those almost from nothing. The from, no, you not almost from nothing. From Absolutely nothing. From nothing. Yeah. Absolutely from nothing. So it can be done. Is there, Absolutely, yeah. I did mine, ironically through polo, and that's the other. All, all you have to do is why do people want to know you? All right, yeah. <laughs> that's the other thing. You may want to know them, but they don't want to know you. Any young entrepreneur. Yeah. So actually, you have to make yourself. You have to have you, something interesting. You have to have something interesting to talk about. And so I decided. If you read my book, um, uh, Safari, that when I was at Santos, the only thing that made me different, because I was, I really had a bad time in Iran. Yeah. I mean, really badly treated, you know, because 
Uh, my nickname was Jomo, and you know, I mean, yeah. pretty bad. All all the people from Harrow and Eaton were pretty rude and horrible. And I mean, it's a funny story. We're waiting. We're waiting to be interviewed. All right, here I'm at Santa's, and I want to join the the, the Royal Horse Guards in those days, the Blues, right? Yeah. And you wait outside in the anteroom for the adjutant to interview you. you know? And there's this other guy who went to Eaton sitting next to me, right? And he looked at me and he said, um, "Tell me," he said. Um, Where'd you have your shirts made? I said, wow, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I said, mm. So I went into the loo, all right? Yeah. And I took my shirt off. I didn't want to be stupid here, right? <laughs> took it off, all right? And my father bought it for me in Nairobi, all right? And it was it was Van Heusen, you know? Yeah. The cheapest, nastiest shirt you can buy. Yeah. Van Heusen. <laughs> so I came back to him and said, sorry, what was that question you asked me? And he said, oh, where'd you have your shirts made? I said, oh, Van Heusen thinking I was frightfully good, right? <laughs> the whole place erupted in laughter. All oh, the Herobians no. and the Wellington, uh, all of them were for English public schools. Yeah. And I went so red, I was so embarrassed. It was like I can't imagine so you being ashamed. embarrassed now. Huh? I can't imagine you ever being embarrassed. Well, I wouldn't make a mistake like that again. So, <laughs> but any, no, I was totally embarrassed. But yeah. then what happened next, this is the next thing. The agent comes in and the first question he asks, going on, he says, um, Okay, the biggest thing we have to do here is, is win the interregimental polo competition, right? I hear uh, one of you is a two-girl polo player. Yeah. Uh, which one is it? And I, I was not going to put my hand up now. I mean, I've been so ashamed. I just sat here. And so they went, to, so he said, well, let me go. What are you? They said, oh, I don't play polo. You. Oh, I'm a minus two. You. I'm a minus two. Good. Minus. Oh, I'm minus one. Don't play, don't play, don't play. Minus one. Came to me. <laughs> and I said, I'm a two-girl player. They all looked at me as if I was God. Wow. All these people have been so rude. And he said, come into my office. Wonderful. And I got up and went into his office. Said, yeah. right. You're the only two girl player at Santos and we want you to captain the team and get this whole thing going. I Brilliant. Thought, wow. That's what I need to do. Yeah. That, that was the thing. That was the thing. You need to have a thing. This is my thing. Yeah. And then I used to, every, all the others had friends. They would go out at weekends, all right? At Santos. And yeah. I pretended I was going to go. And they went into the forest, then came out again. When they'd all gone, and I went to the wooden horse uh, at Santa's, and I just did three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, all weekend wow. on the wooden horse. So I'm going to be the best polo player in the world. Yeah. It was made up that day where that guy was so rude about the Ben Houston shirt. And where'd you get your shirts made now? Harvey and Hudson, anyway. Okay. <laughs> we, we learned that no Van Houston anymore. Uh, no. no Van Houston. Huntsman's. I feel like we've been very cruel to my Van suits. Houston. My suits, Huntsman. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'd like to ask you just before you go a series of kind of quick fire questions which mm. you have to answer without thinking about too much and, okay. and hopefully we'll get the most honest response from Jeffrey that we can because we know all about you as a businessman but perhaps not about you as a man so who in the world of business do you most admire? Ted Turner Why is that? Such an entrepreneur I mean yeah. amazing Ted Turner's story is so extraordinary and he's and he's He's so brave. He's, you know, he won all the, the yachting races. Um, he loves animals. Yeah. He loves. He saved. He saved bison, you know, from being extinct. He, he's a fantastic man and fearless. Totally fearless. And comes back athletic. To and, yeah. Yeah. Good looking, fun, <laughs> terrific guy. The best. Yeah. What would you be doing if you weren't running Abercrombie and Kent? Do you think? If you hadn't had all those lucky breaks and those moments. Of I think I'd have become a pilot. I'd, I've, one thing I've always regretted. That I never flown a helicopter, so I think I'd been. I'd have loved to have flown a helicopter or or a, or the 
fast plane. I yeah. wish I'd gone actually into the Air Force and not into Santa. Well, there's know. still time for that. Still time. No, to well, I, I keep on looking at it. I keep saying maybe I'll just go and yeah. go and learn how to fly. Go to take take a year off and learn. I still want to do that. What single thing are you most proud of in your career? Fifty-five years of Abercrombie and Kent. I think creating a brand. Yeah. Creating Abercrombie and Kent as a brand. It's quite something to create a brand. Many people try and never get there. And actually, yeah. it's not that long to have created a, a brand that's, that's very, you know, I mean, uh, American Express uh, have an annual meeting. They ask all the top brands there. And yeah. I'm there with Ferrari, Gucci, um, you know, all the top brands. Gulfstream, yeah. uh, you know, it's up there. And as a side point to that, do you think you would have been as successful had you just called it Kent Travel or something like that? Do you think the Abercrombie is really the I, a big I don't part think of the brand? So. I think Abercrombie and Kent was really, yeah. uh, probably it's was genius. Yeah. It was a genius move, even though I was 20 years old. I think it was a, a really good, uh, for all the wrong reasons, as you've heard in this interview. But um, yeah, it was a yeah. really good idea. <laughs> What's your most treasured physical possession? You know, I... What I tell everybody in Abercrombie and Kent is you shouldn't treasure physical possessions. You should treasure memories. Right? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, all the memories of all my different adventures, that's what I think about. You, you've got to, you're most, say you're going to die, right? You've got yeah. two days to go before you die. Yeah. What are you going to be thinking about? You're going to think about your Ferrari outside or my, my Bentley that's sitting here? I don't think so. Well, no, no. I'm going mean, to be thinking of, wow, I was the first. I was the first person to go all the way up the Amazon. All right? yeah. And any entrepreneur, the biggest thing you should actually tell them is that they have to believe in their idea in such a way that they are passionate, forever yeah. passionate. Don't even think that it's not a good idea. Passionate by it. I mean, they'll sell anybody, sell a taxi driver, sell a guy in the street, this idea. I do it all the time, dinner, about this new idea. Sell them, be passionate, and then they must be totally brave, and they must never, ever give up. Most people give up. And they'll have such, and you have to fight your way through the worst, worst, worst pitfall, and fight your way out. Yeah, which is what I've done. I mean, Abercrombie Kent, fifty-five years it hasn't all been roses, you know. Right. Been a lot of huge cesspits you had to clamber out of. But if you're determined, you'll clamber out. Brilliant, Jeffrey Kent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for listening to this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with more invaluable insights from the world of entrepreneurs. But until then, you can find us on our website, which is www.thegentlemansjournal.com. Or if you're so inclined, follow us on Instagram at The Gents Journal or indeed on Twitter at The Gents Journal. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you very, very soon.